Many of you will have got my email invitation to join a National Day of Prayer put on by Pray as One New Zealand. It all came a bit short notice. I only got the email in my inbox the night before. And so the idea was that for New Zealanders all around the country to join into a very large video chat where we would pray for the country for 12 hours from 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. And you think, well, how's that going to work? How's how's that not going to be just chaos? Well, it ended up being a lot simpler and a better experience than I thought. What happens is you go to their website and with one click, you would be drawn into their video chat room, their conference. And, And so how it worked is every half hour, there would be a new theme. A church leader, a different church leader would introduce the theme very briefly, just a few minutes, and then we'd pray. So when I joined in, the theme was praying for the poor and vulnerable in New Zealand. And a Salvation Army couple, husband and wife, they gave a brief introduction and led us in prayer. What happened then is we were split into groups of eight. So there would be eight video screens uh, on on your monitor and we would pray, uh, just like you would in a prayer meeting. And then on the half hour, we would then go back for the next theme and that process would be repeated as long as you wanted it to. And I wasn't sure what it was going to be like when I started, but I came away very encouraged. I felt like I'd been part of something bigger. I felt like I'd made a difference along with everyone else praying. And I even came away with a sense of being in God's presence. And of course, praying with a group is is much better, but this was a really positive experience. And because this brings us to Jesus's prayer as we move through the Easter story and as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's all about Jesus praying in the garden and times were desperate. I mean, times are desperate in New Zealand around the world with the virus. But on that night before he was crucified, Jesus was desperate. He had a life and death issue that he wanted to bring to his heavenly father in prayer. And of course, he didn't have the video type conferencing. He prayed, and even though he had his friends, he prayed alone. So we're going to open this up. We're going to explore the Garden of Gethsemane as the story is found in Mark chapter 14 and starting from verse 32. Before that, how are we going to structure this morning? Well, first of all, we're going to look at Jesus' example in prayer so that we can pray better. And then we're going to look at God's response to prayer so that we know how to deal with God's answers, including when God says no. So that's going to be our structure this morning, Jesus' example in prayer and God's response to prayer. So starting off in Mark chapter 14 from verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Sit here while I pray. And so we now come to Jesus' first example. And Jesus' first example in prayer for us is to seek one-on-one solitary time-out prayer with the living God. This was Jesus' example from the very first day of his ministry, the very first breakout day. And so all through that day, people had come with their sick and he'd healed and cast out demons and the crowds were pressing in and then He retired for the evening, and we pick this up in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place 
where he prayed. Not only in the beginning of his ministry, but in the middle of his ministry, Jesus also set the example of praying one-on-one with his father. So after he had fed the 5,000 and it was getting late, we read this in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Again, we've seen Jesus pray one-on-one with his father in the morning and here we see in the evening Jesus seeking God in prayer. And so as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, we're not surprised that Jesus gathers his disciples but then leaves them and goes to a secluded part of the garden to pray one-on-one. That's the first example. It's good to pray with other folk. It's good to pray in a small group or be led in prayer in church, but it's important that we carve out one-on-one prayer with our Heavenly Father. The next example we see here in the garden is Jesus praying from the heart. Listen to verse uh, 33. Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if it possible, the hour might pass from him. So we see here Jesus praying from the heart. Phrase upon phrase, word upon word, builds up until we can scarcely breathe. Jesus said, I am deeply distressed. I am troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he he, he falls to the ground. And in Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus even sweated blood. He was in such agony in prayer. Jesus is praying from the heart. He's not pretending to his friends. He's certainly not pretending to God. He's been open and honest. He's not minimizing. He's not glossing over the travail of his soul. He brings all this, all his agony and his angst into the presence of the living God. And and this is our example for us as well. Jesus' example is to pray alone, but also to pray from the heart, whether we are filled with great joy or with great sorrow, or even apathy. We just come to the Lord and we tell him about it. Uh, Whether we uh, have a sense of peace or we are overwhelmed, we pray from the heart. The third thing we learn about Jesus' prayer is that he prayed with a structure or, or a pattern. Now this seems contradictory. How can you pray from the heart and pray with a structure? Well, let's have a look at what Jesus did and, and we can learn from that. Verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Wonderful prayer, isn't it? There are four things about this organizational structure of the prayer. The first thing is is Jesus' address, his opening address is Abba, Father. Two words that are synonymous, that mean the same thing. Abba is Aramaic. Now, even though the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the common language of the of the whole world then, in Palestine, the first language, what Jesus grew up learning and spoke every day was Aramaic, where we get the word Abba from. So here we have both the, the Aramaic and the and the Greek. Abba, Father. And these two words build on each other. They 
bounce off, echo, resonate together and build up this wonderful picture of warmth and respect, of delight. Jesus delighting in the presence of his Father. And this is a a key ingredient of Christian prayer. Christian prayer is always a prayer between a daughter and her father or a son and his dad. That is the relationship that we come. Christian prayer, think of the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father, who art in heaven. Abba, Father. This is the example both on the Sermon on the Mount, where we hear the Lord's Prayer, and also here in the garden, our Father. So that's the first part of the the structure of this prayer. The second part is tied up in these words, everything is possible to you. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's declaring the character of God. God is almighty, omnipotent, as the theologians like to say. By his word, the universe was created. By his word, the universe continues to be sustained. And by his word, the universe will one day become into all completion. If God was to remove his presence from the universe, it would all turn to dust. And this is why we can come with our request to the living God, because he is not some minor deity off to the side, one of many. He is supreme, the one and only, and he loves to hear our requests. And so Jesus starts off by saying, Abba Father, which connects that relationship, but also you are the creator God and all things are possible to you. So that's the second part of Jesus's structuring of the prayer. Thirdly, we come to the request, the request itself. And so uh, we see this here, take this cup from me. And to our ears, this seems such an unusual request. What is Jesus talking about? Well, the cup refers to an Old Testament metaphor, common Old Testament metaphor, the cup of God's wrath. And there's a lot happening with that phrase, the cup of God's wrath. Uh, But let me summarize. Now, we know that all through the history of God's people, that no matter how kind and gracious God was, that they strayed and rebelled and often went to extremes, terrible extremes. And so God would raise up prophets who would speak words of mercy and challenge. And the words like from Jeremiah, repent, come back to God, or there will be judgment. And to Jeremiah, that judgment was the Babylonian nation will come and wipe out the land, destroy Jerusalem and burn down the temple. Repent, otherwise judgment will come. Now, as part of that, the, 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 the prophets bringing words of judgment was this metaphor of drinking the cup of God's wrath. If you do not repent, you will drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. And this is the cup. This is the cup that Jesus is asking to pass. And and we see something of this cup in Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. This then is the cup that Jesus is referring to. It is the judgment of God distilled into one grim and unimaginable draft that Jesus is about to drink. And here we come to the whole reason for Easter, for it is we who deserve to drink from this cup. We have rebelled against God and his ways, 
He is holy beyond imagination. Now, we tend to imagine God's holiness being about here and our sin being about here and the gap being that not that big. But in reality, God's holiness is so much more wonderful and glorious and even fearful than we can imagine, right off the scale. And our sin and our stain, our rebellion, our filth is, again, way off the scale in the other direction. And there is no human way of bridging this gap. We all deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath before a holy God. But Jesus came to bridge the gap. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be children, sons and daughters of the living God. It is we who deserve to drink the cup to the very dregs and to stagger under its righteous weight. Yet, here in the garden, Jesus knows that in a few hours, it is he that will drink the cup. Jesus knows that it is he that will be nailed to the cross. Jesus knows that it is he that will take the punishment that we deserve on himself. It is he knows that he will be separated from his heavenly father. And that is why he's full of angst and sorrow and care. And Isaiah 53 sums up this agony so well. Isaiah 53 from verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And this is why Jesus came into the world. He knew this from day one. And yet now this day is upon him and he is deeply distressed. He is troubled and overwhelmed, overwhelmed to the point of death. And so he prays, take this cup from me. But this is not how the prayer ends because the third, oh sorry, the fourth and final part of this prayer is this. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. And again, Jesus is modeling the Lord's prayer for us, isn't it? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will. Jesus has come to his heavenly father his Abba Father, he's opened his heart, he's laid it bare, he's brought the request and he lays it before his God, his Father, his Abba, and then says, your will be done. Three times Jesus asks for the cup to be removed and three times God says, no, you must drink the cup of my wrath. And because Jesus did drink the cup on that first Good Friday, the punishment we deserve was laid upon him so that we could be set free from the punishment we deserve and be adopted as daughters and sons into the father heart of the living God. And as Jesus approaches the sleeping disciples for the third time, we read in verse 41, Are you still sleeping and resting? He said to them. Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Judas and armed thugs arrive and Jesus is betrayed to death. And so we leave the gospel story here until next week. And we can withdraw for just a bit and reflect on the implications for us, especially how we can learn from Jesus about dealing with unanswered prayer. And we'll do this by looking at God's response to prayer. When we pray, 
how does God respond? Well, when it comes to our requests, which God actively encourages us to bring, when it comes to our requests, God has three options, three possible answers. They are yes, no, and wait. Yes, no, and wait. And I think we can all agree that none of us have a problem when we get a yes from God. We rejoice, we celebrate, we share it with others, we give thanks to God. But it's with the no and the wait where our problem lies. And because we don't get what we want, we tend to call this unanswered prayer. Technically, God has answered us. A no is an answer, just as a wait is an answer. But because we haven't got our own way, we tend to call this unanswered prayer. And if we step back for a minute, we we know that it's sensible sometimes to get a wait and even a no. We know this from our own experience. Imagine a father sitting in the lounge while his six-year-old boy is playing with cars and trucks on the ground. Now, this lad loves anything with wheels, anything, whether it's a plane or a car or a motorbike. He gets his hand on it, and he'll be playing with it. And as he's playing there quietly, he looks up to his dad and says, uh, can I take the car for a drive? And the dad says, what car? And the six-year-old says, well, the car in the garage. And the father thinks and says, wait. Wait, son, and when you're 16, we'll talk about it. I mean, that's the answer you would give, wouldn't it? It would be irresponsible for the father to say, here's the keys, knock yourself out. It would be equally responsible for the father to say, no, you will never drive, son. Not even when you're 50, you will not be able to drive. I mean, both in this case, the no and the yes, are are just totally inappropriately answers. And it's the same with us when we pray. There are times when God says, wait. What about when God says no? How do we deal with that? Well, let me turn this on its head to get some perspective. What if God said yes every time we asked him for anything? It's actually a frightening thought. Tim Keller, who's a preacher I often listen to, tells a story. He says that when he was at university, he fell head over heels with this young lady who did not return his affections at all. He did all sorts of things to gain her attention and she just rebuffed him. And he prayed and he prayed and said, Lord, this is the one. This is the one. I know you want me to marry her. You know, and he prayed and he prayed and it just never got answered. And a few months later, he ended up meeting another young lady who eventually became his wife and they've had many decades happily married. And he says, as I look back, I am so pleased. God did not answer that prayer. At the time, I was annoyed with God. (laughs) I was devastated. But I am so pleased that God did not answer that prayer. And I think all of us, if we look back, have a prayer where we think, Lord, I am so pleased you did not answer that prayer with a yes. And this is why we pray your will be done and not mine. Because God has the big picture. We don't have the big picture. He knows how all the pieces fit. So we come and we bring our prayers to our Abba Father, heartfelt prayers, and we lay them before him, and then we say, your will be done. And then when we do, we will find Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, become a reality in our lives. Philippians 4, verse 7. I'll read verse 6 to start. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, and by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And it's wonderful. That's a real encouragement 
to pray. Now, God then does not say in verse 7, and God will answer all of your prayers with a yes. He doesn't say that. Listen to what he says in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here we have the primary purpose for prayer. You see, we think the primary purpose for prayer is to get a yes or a no or a wait. But no, that's very much secondary. The main purpose of prayer is to draw close to God, to lean into God and to experience his peace. And this is why praise and thanksgiving and confession are also important parts of prayer. Let me put this in a chart, a table to help us understand. In the left-hand column, we have two types of prayer. We have the answered prayer and the unanswered prayer. In the next column, we have our point of view. And when we get an answered prayer, it's a great big tick. Mission accomplished. When we don't get the answer we want, a no or a wait, well, it's a great big ugly cross. Tick and a cross. It's a win-lose. We see prayer as a win-lose. When I get my way, it's a win. When I don't get my request, it's a loss. But that's not how God sees prayer at all. His primary purpose is for us to draw close to him and for us to experience his peace. And so if we go back to the answered prayer, his key issue is not whether the answer was yes or no. His key issue is, has Douglas drawn close to me? Is he experiencing my peace? If he can say yes, then it's a great big tick. What about when God says no to my prayers? Well, God looks at it and says, has Douglas come closer to me? Is he experiencing my peace? And then, if the answer is yes to both of those, it's a great big, huge tick. Because that's God's primary purpose in prayer. And that's what we have exactly modelled in the garden. Jesus is modelling this process. He came with a genuine life or death, heartfelt prayer request. He brought it to God. He drew close to God, not once, but three times. And even though he said no, we see him leave the garden with a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that was guarding his heart, a peace that enabled him to face betrayal and the cross and all the agony and the suffering. And so from God's point of view, the prayer in the garden was a 100% success. Not because Jesus got a yes, but because Jesus drew close to his heavenly father and left with a sense of rock solid peace. So let's pull all this together. What have we learned? Well, we've explored Christ's example in prayer in the garden. We've seen a model prayer that is one-on-one from the heart. We've seen Jesus draw on the Lord's prayer with the Our Father and Your will be done, and how he structured his prayer so that he came and laid the requests before his heavenly Father and then said, Your will not mine, but your will be done. And this is the pattern that we can use. It's not the only pattern. Of course, the Lord's Prayer and this prayer align very much. The Lord's Prayer includes thanksgiving and worship. And Jesus has just come from that. Remember, the Passover meal that he's just come from was all about thanking God and worshipping him. And so Jesus always has that percolating within himself. And of course, the other part of the pattern of prayer in the Lord's Prayer is confession which Jesus 
never needed to do. But here in the garden, with this model, we have a pattern that we can learn from and emulate. And after looking at Jesus' example, we looked at God's response, and, and we didn't need to, this wasn't new for us. We know that God says yes, no, or wait. We might not like it, but we've been reminded that actually the whole process of prayer is about not getting the answer we want, but us drawing close to God and experience a peace that transcends all understanding as we come into our Abba Father's presence. And finally, we are in awe, absolute awe of Jesus, whose prayer was denied three times. And because that prayer was denied, Jesus obediently drank from the cup of God's wrath, drank it to the very dregs, and died on the cross Why? So that we might become daughters and sons of the living God. What a price Christ paid. What a price Christ freely paid for you and I. Let's pray.